Welcome to the Arts Hubbub, a monthly look inside Australian arts and artists. I'm your host, George Dunford. Travel stimulates creativity, whether it's a performer touring a show internationally or a painter looking back at their own culture from a distant land. But the coronavirus has clipped all our wings, closing borders and locking down some areas completely. So this month, we wanted to look at travel without moving, how artists have benefited from being away and how they might be maintaining that external stimulus for their practice. We talked to visual artist and activist Peter Drew, famous for his posters and paste-ups that ask us to refine our thoughts about Australian identity. A watershed moment for Peter was at the Glasgow School of Art, where they didn't quite get what he was doing. I was accepted into the Glasgow School of Art based on my illegal street art projects. They, they loved them when they were happening here in Australia, but when I kept doing them uh, in Glasgow, the school got a bit nervous. And like any institution, they were risk adverse. They thought this might not go well for us. So they um, started sending me emails asking me to stop. We'll discover how that worked out in our in-depth interview. For The Nudge, our professional development section, we talk with Western Australian writer Craig Silvey about how he was able to promote his new book Honeybee without leaving the state. Plus, Eliza Roberts from Res Artist describes the impact of COVID on artist residencies. And choreographer Natasha Sturgis tells us about the pros and cons of making a new dance work virtually instead of physically during lockdown. Peter Drew is best known for his reinterpretations of what an Aussie is through a series of posters that included Indian-Australian Monga Khan and other Australians who've been lost in the whitewashing of history. He recently wrote a memoir, Poster Boy, about what drove him into street art and finding a political bent to his work. Arts Hub's Gina Fairley spoke with Peter Drew in South Australia in February before COVID travel restrictions had really hit. We're sitting here in your studio at home birds outside with gorgeous. You built the studio last year, I understand. How do you manage home and studio life? It's a bit of a juggle. My wife, Julie, she works from home also. She has a uh, practice making clothing, scarves and socks. And so our lives are very similar in some ways and that helps because we can negotiate and it's about finding a rhythm. And we're always in sync with each other, but not often with the rest of the world. <laughs> Earlier in his career, yeah, Peter um, had been living overseas in the UK, which shaped his practice and perspective as an artist. Gina was interested in how he tried to decolonise the Stop the Boats messages that both sides of Australian politics were campaigning on. His art was more potent because he was protesting at the heart of the old British Empire. Well, I was living overseas and I think that experience it must always bring home ideas of belonging and I because I suddenly became the Australian guy it sort of imposed upon you so I thought a lot about what it means to be Australian what I liked about that what I would like to change about that if that's something I could do and being in art school you're encouraged to try new things and I until then really didn't like most political art because it's so didactic. 
propagandistic, all those things. So, uh, but I thought I'm in art school, I should give it a go. And both major parties were promising to stop the boats. And that phrase seemed particularly absurd to me coming from a nation of immigrants. And so I designed a poster in the style of uh, something from the 19th century. And it said, uh, Australia says, stop the boats to avoid Aboriginal genocide, stop Great Britain's illegal migration to Australia. And so, and I had an image of a boat from the First Fleet, which I took from a painting and, and reproduced. And I traveled down to London and, and stuck them up. And they were quite popular. And it made me think that maybe there was something that I could pursue within political art. I understand the media were very quick to take notice of those posters in London. What was their reaction? Well, I had a few run-ins with my school um, and it was, it was already happening before then, actually. I was accepted into the Glasgow School of Art based on my illegal street art projects. They, they loved them when they were happening here in Australia, but when I kept doing them uh, in Glasgow, the school got a bit nervous and like any institution, they were risk adverse. They thought this might not go well for us. So they um, started sending me emails saying that, asking me to stop. And it started off polite and then became more forceful. They were going to review my status at the school. And I, um, it really annoyed me because I thought it was cowardly and they were only doing it because uh, no one could see what they were doing and I thought they should feel embarrassed about it. And so I went to the media and they wrote a story about it because it seemed so, like such a conservative thing to be doing. Why has it been important for you to place those conversations on our streets? It started small, as I said before, I, I started talking about politics and national identity uh, became what I was uh, discussing. And so once you start on a topic, you're in some way obliged to try to say everything as impossible as that is. And so it really went from immigration to belonging, and then it opens up to sovereignty and, and everything. And, uh, and it's an impossible task, especially for one individual to uh, uh, make a complete picture. And so I sort of learned that uh, slowly but surely. In a way, I definitely am an activist, but first and foremost, I'm an artist. And I think that's worth um, claiming and sort of holding on to because, well, the question becomes, why be an artist at all? Why not just be an activist? What is this art thing anyway? I think it's holding me back. All I care about is politics and creating change. And as soon as you do that, you lose something. So it's, it's worth, before you throw it out, it's worth uh, taking a second to um, assess what that might be. And I think a crucial element of what art is, is cur curiosity and imagination. Those are fundamental and an uncertainty. It, to be a good activist, to be an effective activist, you need a certain element of political certainty. This is the way it is. This is what's wrong. This is how we're going to fix it. That's what's appealing. That's that's what's appealing about propaganda. And But as soon as you do that, you surrender your curiosity 
you surrender a part of your imagination, the part that thinks maybe the other side's right. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe uh, there's room for negotiation. Those things are, you know, powerful within art. And if we surrender them at our own peril, especially if you like art. You've posted, what, maybe... 4,000, 5,000 posters? What do you think? I think it's, it's over 4,000 now. I, I've lost count, but uh, yeah. Have you ever been arrested? A couple of times. And it always happens when I'm with somebody else. I've gone out with uh, some a helper. Uh, I've really only done it, uh, I can think of doing it twice, and those are the two times which I was arrested. Because it's as soon as you see two people doing a job which one person should be able to do, it looks suspicious and uh yeah and the thing about getting arrested is that it's it's kind of boring in in a lot of ways that's the worst thing about it's just how long it takes and um yeah it's not really as as dramatic as as you might think (laughs) i got back from glasgow and i knew i wanted to make more politically focused art So what I did is started to get in contact with asylum seekers in and out of detention and provide them with art materials, just very simple uh, in the form of notebooks and pens. And I just asked them to uh, draw their story. And I was really looking for somebody who loved to draw. uh, And I found Ali and he filled up two notebooks full of drawings and they told his whole story from leaving Afghanistan uh, because his father was killed by the Taliban then uh, then his brother was killed in Koita in Pakistan and so he had this traumatic life that he was able to draw in these notebooks and it was incredible and I took the uh, the images and made them into just, just blew them up, just made them into very large uh, paste ups and I didn't, I, I said, I, I wanted to surprise him because I thought, you know, he des- deserves a, you know, a surprise. And so I said, listen, Ali, I'm going to, look, I'm going to do something with these images. Just trust me. And we were becoming friends. And so it was, um, you know, it was nice being able to give him that. And then we sort of took him into the city and, uh, and showed him all these drawings. And he was very happy about it, obviously. And they worked as art, I think, because they were so... Uh, empathic they um, they had a great effect on the people that saw them um, but they weren't effective as propaganda or as activism in some ways because they were so full of nuance you really had to stand in front of them and read the story and there was so much information to absorb and it really made me think about what is it what is it that makes effective propaganda it has to be punchy you have to strip the nuance out of it you have to make it simple and and uh, and false in some ways really to take the nuance out of things it does simplify things to the, to the point at which they are not the whole truth um, but that was what I was interested in because I because I think fundamentally what I make is art disguised as propaganda and it sort of examines why do we want propaganda were you ever accused of promoting a narrative that you perhaps didn't own or have authority to to use those voices? It sort of touches on the idea of, of cultural appropriation. That's sort of the way it's expressed. I don't... 
I've sort of mixed feelings about it. I have a view that cultural appropriation is really a anti-cultural concept in some ways because it, what it does fundamentally is subordinate culture to politics. And I think ultimately the job of culture, if it is something that we believe in, is to transcend political boundaries and, and to reveal that it is possible to empathise across these boundaries. Um, in some ways, it's the artist's job to transgress. And there are times at which the culture is prepared for that to happen and there are times at which the culture closes down and and enforces those boundaries. So, and that's a negotiation. I'm not sort of an absolutist. And so there's, uh, you do what you can. And I understand that obviously, historically, some cultures some peoples have had a much harder time than others but to i always think that if some group of people or some culture it becomes labeled as having been fundamentally hard done by that that hurts those people to, for that to become their identity and i i, I always feel yeah. apprehensive about just buying into that completely so yeah, there's never, it's, yeah, I, I just get very suspicious when anyone declares themselves to be on the right side of history. That shows a certain level of political certainty which I'm just not comfortable with. It's dangerous. Since we caught up with Peter, he's created Together Soon Enough to remind us all that after COVID relaxes, we will be reunited again. You can see his work on his website, peterdrewarts.com After a difficult 2020, Arts Hub wants to reimagine the future and we invite you to join us when we present our online conference, Visions 2020. Held on 9th of December, Visions 2020 will bring together our community to talk about how the sector can improve on funding, diversity and more. For program announcements and members' ticketing offers, head to events.artshub.com.au slash visions2020. Now for The Nudge, our monthly look at improving your arts practice. How do you travel when borders are closed? What happens when you're awarded a residency but can't physically attend because of the risks of COVID-19? or when you're halfway through a residency and get stuck when the borders are closed. This month, we talk to artists and arts administrators about adapting to the unusual circumstances of 2020 and what they've learned about working under these conditions. Earlier this year, independent choreographer Natasha Sturgis returned to Sydney from London, having been awarded a two-week artist residency at Mile Lakes on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. I was really hoping to use this residency for, yeah, for two weeks to really generate a whole lot of movement um, to kind of extend upon some ideas which I'd already established. Especially because um, being an independent maker when I was creating my previous works, it was a long period of time of a rehearsal here, a rehearsal there in between other jobs. Um, so to have the two-week block, um, to be in the studio for full two weeks to really research and have that time uninterrupted was something I was really looking forward to. Unfortunately, that's when COVID hit, forcing Natasha and the dancers she was expecting to work with into lockdown. 
Nursing her dog Molly, Natasha tells us a little bit about that process. It was um, it was a strange time to force yourself to create. Um, you never really want to do that. You always want it to be as organic and natural as possible. But uh, yeah, it was an opportunity I didn't want to want to waste. Rather than abandon the residency, Natasha pressed ahead, expanding the number of dancers she had expected to be working with and adapting the creative development process in order to work online. Because I know how to create in a studio and that's that's what I'm good at. So I really wanted to approach the residency as close to that process as possible. So I essentially had my idea that I wanted movement to be inspired from and something that I wanted to explore. And so I gave my dancers kind of a bit of a backstory, but then I also gave them um, specific tasks to respond to and they they filmed themselves improvising and then sent that back. We had a little group WhatsApp group. And so that was kind of round one. And then I went through each individual video and I pulled out the bits, which I thought were really, really special. And then I sent my dancers those back for them to respond and refine. Natasha was one of the lucky ones who could make a revised digital residency work. But 54% of planned residencies this year were cancelled, modified, cut short or postponed because of COVID-19, according to stats released by ResArtist in conjunction with the University College London. Those results or the survey was undertaken back in May this year, um, so not even that far into the pandemic and those were the figures that were backing up what we were seeing in the field. Eliza Roberts, the executive director of ResArtists, which is a network of arts residency operators from around the globe, tells us more about the impact of COVID-19 on artists' residencies, as well as on organisations who support such programs. I think at that time, ResArtists was really being bombarded um, around the clock from artists who were stranded in residence. Um, so people, you know, for example, I can remember stuck in Japan who were needing to get back to South Korea and to the States. So we were able to sort of assist them by way of connecting with their local consulate in Japan. Then there was also the flip side, which were the arts residency operators um, who were basically going under due to travel restrictions and physical distancing measures. So, yes, all of all of these add up to a very destructive moment for the arts residencies landscape. Western Australian writer Craig Sylvie's work has been disrupted by COVID. Normally, he'd be out promoting his new book, Honeybee, published in September, but with state borders closed, the traditional publicity tour has been very different. The book industry has actually remained fairly solid. The, the dips in numbers, you know, haven't been anywhere near as, as high as were initially anticipated, so that's been really heartening. But in terms of releasing books and connecting with readers beyond Western Australia, it's been all about the virtual events. But it's been really wonderful. It's been it's been lovely. I mean, it's different. I have to say, it's it's a different feel to being in a room with people. But you know, it's no less rewarding. It's just it's just a different phenomenon. I think. While Natasha and her dancers were able to make an online residency work, she said it was far from an ideal way to create new choreography. When I was doing this residency, the process, it lacked momentum because uh, obviously there's a time lag, but also because people are trying to fit in these tasks. 
in between their day. It meant that it was really hard to capitalize, yeah, capitalize on that momentum. Although we were able to generate a lot of movement in the experimental exploratory stage, if we were to kind of refine those ideas and trying to collect them into a more of a structure, we would definitely need to be in the space. As well as the delay it took to respond to the dancers' individual movements, Natasha says the creative process was constricted by the lack of physical space available to each of the dancers during the virtual residency. So many people were dancing in living rooms and dogs and cats running around and you've got your four square metre little lounge room. So it, not, having the, um, not having the space to um, respond from the movement that's in the room and having that, that energy, the energy from moving bodies. Digital book launches also lack the intimacy and energy of the live experience, according to Craig. Yeah, in, in terms of the intimacy of the event, there's nothing quite like stepping out in front of a crowd of people at a physical event. And, you know, there's always that awkwardness and hint of anxiety and separation between author and audience, which is just slowly overcome. And you both send your tendrils out over the course of a conversation and connect in the middle. And the mood in the room by the end of an event is very intimate you know it's 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 a really beautiful thing that you both reach out to each other and so that sensation is a little harder to engineer i suppose over zoom i'm doing my best to to connect with people but from my end i don't get much feedback like many writers craig finds touring a book an interesting experience because he finds out how his book is received and it's very different to the private work of writing you know, people often think that when you finish a manuscript and when you, you know, when you cap it off with that final full stop, you feel relieved and overjoyed and proud of yourself and, and all these things. But the truth is you just feel profoundly empty. You feel hollowed out. You feel wrung out. You feel as though you are just drained. It's a really strange phenomenon. But the truth is that being on the road, connecting with readers, talking to people about the book, hearing their responses, that's the stuff that fills me back up. That's really enriching. And, and you know, the good and the bad, not every response obviously is, is uh, uproariously positive. It's fascinating to receive uh, all manner of challenges and criticism and, and to be part of that conversation as well. On a positive side, Natasha said that taking her choreographic residency online gave her a greater sense of connection with the dancers she was working with. I spent a lot of time traveling and dancing um, for the last couple of years. And so to be able to continue those connections has been, yeah, really, really helpful. And the online context is just, it's so important for that. But I don't think there's any substitute really for being able to be in a, in a space and to be with moving bodies and to feel that energy. And that's something that COVID and 2020 has um, really made me appreciate more. Craig has only ever gone on one residency, and it didn't turn out as planned. And look, it, it confirmed to me, I have to say, that, that residencies just aren't for me. I'm very ritualised as a writer. I'm very routine-based. And so being in a new space, well, it just takes time for me to, to adapt to. You know, I need to feel really secure in my surroundings in order to drift off and uh, occupy the space that an author needs to be inside to, to get work done. 
However, I, I certainly see how it works for other people. Other people are invigorated. Other authors are invigorated by being in a space like Varuna where you can talk through ideas with other authors and brainstorm and knock ideas between each other and delight in that. I am the complete opposite. I sit with my work very privately. I don't show anyone developing work until I'm certain that it's almost ready. And so a residency just doesn't, that just doesn't work for me, unfortunately. Eliza believes that nothing can ever truly replace the experience and the creative impact of undertaking an artist's residency. I'd sort of be in the wrong field if I thought that residencies and in-person exchange could be entirely replaced by virtual means. I don't think they can be and, you know, really nothing can replace that face-to-face or in-person experience. Um, And, you know, even the term residency derives from residence, which is, you know, to reside in a place. So I think that's really important and I do truly believe that that will take place again once we get through this difficult time. And I actually think in that regard residencies are going to play a very important role. Um, I think through, you know, by their very nature of international travel and intercultural understanding and people-to-people exchange, on-the-ground exchange, I think they really will play a pivotal role in um, reopening borders and um, intercultural exchange worldwide. That said, Eliza is also expecting to see residencies evolve. I actually imagine um, as the field changes as a result of the impact of COVID-19, the definition of what constitutes an arts residency is going to shift. And so it wouldn't surprise me if it becomes a bit more flexible and takes into account these types of models where it might be sort of more studio-based or community festival-based, for example, without that live-in requirement. So, yes, I think that will take place as well as, you know, a, a rise in local exchange and digital forms as well. Thanks for listening to the Arts Hub Up. We'll be back next month. You can contribute your review or rating via Apple Podcasts. Our guests this month were Peter Drew, Craig Sylvie, Eliza Roberts and Natasha Sturgis. The Arts Hub Up is produced by Michelle Macklem, Gina Fairley, Sabine Bricks, Richard Watts and George Dunford. Our theme music is Chasing Waterfalls by Tim Scheel. Music in this episode also by The Other Stars. And our coverage of COVID-19 is still free outside of the paywall, so you can stay connected during this time at artshub.com.au. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Kulin Elders, past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded.